Welcome to Constructive Curiosity, a podcast that promotes personal growth, authenticity, and helping others through inspirational messages, techniques for success, and interviews with extraordinary people. Follow and subscribe on YouTube and Instagram at Constructive Curiosity or listen on your preferred podcast platform. The journey begins now. Welcome to Constructive Curiosity. My guest tonight is Jeanette Etnire. Jeanette, how are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You, we had a great conversation before we started recording. So I, basically, I want you to talk about a lot of those same topics. Give us a quick overview of your life, and then we'll dive into some more of the topics You know, from there. Sure. Um, you know, I'm just on a, I'm on a voyage. I, I'm on an adventure every day of my life. I have moved from being in journalism to being in business, to being in the clinical psychology realm of the world and have been there for the last almost 30 years. Um, the great thing about being in that field is that you can do a lot of different things. You can branch out and learn and grow in a lot of different directions. So I've enjoyed that thoroughly throughout my life. As I go through this next phase, children are grown and I've got, you know, my freedoms back. Um, I'm, I'm playing like a child that was exploring what career they want to go into when you're growing up. If you remember those days, you're trying to figure out what you want to do and you're kind of trying a little bit of everything. So I feel like I'm kind of going through that phase again now. And it's, it's exciting. I look forward to each and every day. It's fun. I love the whole idea of constructive curiosity. I love the mindset behind that. Uh, you and I had a chance to kind of talk a little bit about its birth and um, how this has come to be for you. And uh, sounds like you, like I, kind of keep your hands on lots of different things. And um, that's that's what I do, too. It keeps me young. It keeps me moving. It keeps me healthy and it keeps me growing. Uh, and I just don't ever want to become that um, couch potato referee, you know, that's pointing direction, pointing, hey, this is what you should do, but you're still sitting on the couch and how would you know what I would need to do? Because you're not living. Um, so I don't want to be that old person that gets stuck in my old thinking, you know. I want to always be growing and evolving and talking with the young people and learning from them because, um, you know, I, and, and I tell you, I, I've had bosses, of course, that are younger than me at this point in my life, and they'll come to me trepidatiously. They kind of, you know, well, um, I just, I'm your boss, but I know you've got a lot of experience. And I go, stop it. You know, you've got some experiences that I don't have because you're just you're newer out of school than I am. So there's some information that I probably didn't have when I was going to school that you have that I'm going to look forward to learning more of. Oh, they're like, oh, OK, great. Um, so yeah, it sounds like you and I kind of have that connection, that same sort of way of living life. And um, that's that's what's led me here. Um, I decided to get on LinkedIn one day because I hadn't really used it. You know, I just kind of had my name on there uh, just because everybody says this, what you got to do, you know, um, so that people can find you when they're looking to offer work or what have you. All right. So I jumped on LinkedIn. I never used it for years. And one day here, I just decided, you know, I need to spruce that up a little bit. And I need to, um, in my biography, I need to put who I am more in that biography instead of a list of things um, or a resume. So I decided to start there. 
And then I just decided to start writing an, a little newsletter and I would write about whatever comes to mind. And what's interesting to me is that it's drawn all kinds of different people that I've met with and talked with, such as yourself. Um, I feel like my contributions are affirmed and valued on this platform, on the LinkedIn platform. I meet a lot of fine people here. Um, so it's been exciting. I'm uh, trying to kind of figure out what direction I want to go next. I've done just about everything. So I'm exploring. Um, I'm exploring, I'm learning more about nutrition and how that impacts mental health, um, good foods for mood, um, what those look like. I'm not, I am not a nutritionist, so I can only go as far as an education on that stuff, but I, I love it. Um, I'm really big into health and fitness. Um, I think that the body and the mind work together in tandem, as we all know by now. I think this is not new. Um, there was a time in the field where we kind of operated. We thought of people as being in silos and we didn't talk so much in clinical psychology about um, the spiritual side because that was not scientific enough. So please don't bring that into the classroom. But today and now is a different day, right? Now we're talking about mindset, spirituality, and the physical body, and the mind, the mental, the emotional, the physical, everything. We realize that we don't operate in silos anymore, thank goodness. We've evolved from that. And so to me, that's something I always knew even as a young person, but it wasn't welcome information into the culture just yet. Um, and so I kind of was a closet a uh, person that had this notion that things work together is we don't operate in silos, but we really weren't allowed to talk about spirituality and clinical psych programs. So um, not that T today may be very different. So um, it's been an interesting journey. And to see now that that's so welcome and open and we're talking about it is like a breath of fresh air to me in my older years. So it's kind of been cool to see us evolve, to live long enough to see the field evolve to see people evolve and to start talking about some of these things that were hard in 96. Um, I don't know if you saw Leo Buscagli, it was somebody, when I was 25, 26, I think when I read his book entitled Love. And when I go back and read it now, to me, it's, there's great, there's still some great quotes in there, um, but the direction of the writing is different, would have to be different to appeal today to the masses. Uh, but when he was writing, he was speaking to a lesser evolved group of people in 95, 96. And um, so some of the things that we listen to him talk about now, or we see in his book now, I know as, as I do 30 some years later, it's like, we, we got there, Leah, we got there. We got there as a society and we not only got where you were preaching and talking about, but we've evolved past that. And so a lot of what he says is endearing, but it's it's old. Like we've already done that now. We have already recognized that mindset is part of this journey in life that we need to understand and do more of. But I still will refer to a lot of his quotes, especially as we enter the month of love. Um, I, I pull out old Leo and it's, you know, love is not just about romantic love between a, a couple, but it's about understanding the, how we love people in general and how we love ourselves most importantly and foremost. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, um, and what Leo would say is all we have to offer is ourselves. You know, it's, it's our character, it's the way we present, it's the way we show joy, it's the way we parent, 
It is who we are. And why not strive to be your very best so that your children can inherit that? The things are nice, but they're the icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and Leo was a real big proponent of that. He used to say, real love creates, it never destroys. And so. That's a beautiful one there. And, you know, that actually made me think of a topic we didn't really discuss beforehand. But, you know, especially with the younger generations, it seems to be trending more to a healthy acceptance of love on all different scales. It doesn't have to be, like you said, a romantic love or just love for your immediate family, kids, whatever it is. And especially from a viewpoint of a, you know, like a male perspective, there's, there used to be a lot of guys like you'd never tell your best friend that you loved them, but you did. You would love them. Right. And I mean, that's something that it's great to see nowadays that you can be a grown man and tell another man that you love them and there's no romantic inclination. Not that there's anything wrong if that's the way you go, but you know, you don't have to feel threatened by that anymore. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. I think it takes a lot stronger of an individual to show warmth and to expose themselves in that way and be vulnerable in that moment. Someone who's really sure of themselves that can do that. Um, and, and it's the weaker person that can't do that. The person who's struggling more with who they are and doubting who they are and not as confident with who they are that cannot do that. Um, or even is just confused. I think roles changed from one generation to another too. It was just kind of understood that this is what men did and this is what women did for, for a while. Um, and one of the things they really were not invited to the party on was nurturing and caretaking. Um, and that has been the last thing for them to get involved in. And what's been really cool to see with the younger generations, you do see the men jumping in more. You do see them jumping in to partake in chores in the household and everywhere. Um, you see them in engaging in nurturing and caring for the babies and the children more. Um, that wasn't something that you saw so much in the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s when I was growing up. Yeah, it was like, this is your role. So we kind of didn't invite you to the party. We didn't, weren't allowing you to be at the party, you know. We also didn't allow you to feel. We haven't really made, well, that was never okay. You know, when I was growing up, you don't show your feelings if you're a man, because that's a sign of weakness. Um, so we really did a number on our men. But, but the, the, you know, if you look back over history, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we had to prepare our men, almost every generation, for many generations, we were preparing them for war. So, you know, when you're at war and you see a dinosaur, you know, a, a cannon coming at you, you, you don't have time to stop and think, oh, I'm so scared. I don't know what you're going to do. I, you just run. You know, you strategic. You have to think strategically and you have to think, OK, what's the next thing I've got to do? I've got to get out of here. This is the best route. Let's do it um, and feel later, if at all. Um, you know, so that's a, that's a dangerous one, too, because. Being a military veteran, that's the PTSD issues that a lot of soldiers end up with. Is the I think it stems from that though. You didn't have that emotional ability, and I know when I was still in the service, I would push emotional intelligence and try to get it to as many people as I could, because that that was the probably the last big stronghold for toxic masculinity is, you know, the military, police force, stuff like that, where it's a very dangerous job. It's a very mentally taxing job, and you did. That's a great point. You have to be be able to block it, be able to turn it off. But the problem is that none of them ever learned how to turn it back on and how to effectively deal with it. But I mean, I will applaud 
the VA has done a great job. They offer a lot of clinical services, you know, groups that can help people. But that's one place where I feel like you have to grow and get people to understand that it's okay to feel these feelings. It's not okay to feel them in the moment. You know, you got to do your job. But afterwards, if you don't think about them, you don't talk about them, they could cause problems later on or lead to a higher suicide rate, cause people to have issues with relationships. And they're just finally, you know, from the post 9-11 veterans, they're starting to really address that a lot more. And you've seen people come back from even the Vietnam era to get help now because it's accepted. It's okay. So, I mean, that's a huge shift in mindset. Yeah, it's wonderful to see the military really jump in and start to make this more okay, right? And um, they've really evolved as well. And 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 really, um, it's important that we 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 prepare you and your mind. And you know, I've heard that I don't know if it's true or not. You can correct me. They use Call of Duty kinds of games to prepare you for the mindset you need to go into battle and go to war. There's a, a preparation of mindset and body that goes into going into war. Um, there should also be equal amount of time given to debriefing that person before they come home. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, having a party of therapists come out to where you are, Afghanistan, Iran, wherever you are to help walk you through that debriefing from the minute it's decided you're going to go home and you're there. And even after every battle, um, you know, I've, I've worked, I've had some veterans in my office. I am not, um, I, and I wish I did have more of the training on that. I have had tier one training, but not tier two or three. Um, and then I really think it's important after every, as much as it's possible, right? Cause you're at war and you have to be alert and you have to be watching for things again, I don't want to bring you into a place of starting to go through your feelings when we're in the middle of a battlefield that will, right. Right. So, but, but when you're in a safer zone, maybe, and a safer space, um, you know, maybe we filter some folks in, filter some out after a battle and we debrief them and then we filter them back out. It can't just be that we have, nine months to our duty, and then we debrief with a group because that's minimizing the impact. It really minimizes um, mental health to do that. It, it, it's much more, it would be like, um, I'm really lucky, by the way, I work for a super company uh, on a full-time basis that allows 10 bereavement days now when somebody passes. So if I lose a parent or a child, right, I get 10 bereavement days. Um, and and that's that's just lovely, isn't it? And so when you're at battle and you see some of these horrifying things that you see, then it would be nice if we could bring in like another troop and pull them out. And then we get to talk to them and debrief that with them as in the moment, as things are happening. Um, now, again, I am not advocating that we're in the middle of a battlefield doing this. That would be inappropriate. Right. <laughs> Okay, no, wait, hey, what are you doing out here, you know? Um, but we're cycling people in and out so that we're just doing this constantly throughout the war, throughout the battle. We're doing this consistently and reliably every time something happens. So then when we go to debrief them when they come home, that's more of a doable thing. Because think about it, when you've lost someone, I mean, are you just going to be able to like keep going and then, okay, when it's time to go home, I'll deal with my feelings. That's siloing everything. 
You know, we're not silos. We don't operate in silos. Body, mind, spirit work together. And if we're not addressing those things as they come up in real time more, then it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And that minimal debrief time is just not going to have that much of an impact. Now, PTSD really doesn't affect that much of the, the population. You'd be surprised. It's something like, um, oh, what did Dr. I say? Something around 20% of, so lots of people go to battle and lots of people experience things while they're at war, right? And you would know more about this than I would. Um, and I, I only have what my clients who, who've been at battle have shared with me. Um, but you know that uh, more people than not are able to, to, to do what you do and have the debriefing and come home and be fine. I'd say about 80%. I, I bet there's that 15 to 20% that we worry about that is not able to do that. And then those are the folks that come home and tragically we have a high suicide rate, right? In that area, in that group. Um, and we've also had some tragedies out in public, you know, with, with that group. Um, so yeah, there's a solo, uh, there's been some tremendous growth. I'm so proud of our military and I love our military. Um, and in fact, I live on a, um, in a, in an area that's very close to military because I just value, I love that culture and I love being a part of that community and I want to help wherever I can. I'm very proud that we have advanced as much as we have in terms of helping people through mental health issues. I, I mean, that, that is to be, that's a very commendable thing. Um, but we, keep it in mind too, that it's still a very small segment of the population when they come home that, that struggles with it. But uh, nonetheless, that's my two cents. What do I know? <laughs> no, I don't, think you, I don't think you missed any of the major marks there. I think that was good. I mean, it's that kind of thing is very much an individual basis. You know, one person's experience will not be the same as another person's. That's why it always cracks me up with Hollywood tries to encapsulate an entire conflict in a movie like in Platoon or some of the other movies where it's like, this is the entire conflict. And it's like, okay, that's one very zoomed in aspect. You know, everyone else didn't have that exact same experience. If, even if you're in the same unit, you don't have the same experience if you weren't on that mission or this mission. So I mean, it's, I think you did a very good job of summing up a lot of how that's handled. Uh, yeah, it's not, like I said, we can't just look at one piece and, and think that that's everybody. It's not. It, it's, there's so much more to know. Yeah. Now that we've got your opinion on that, you did talk about loss a little bit. That's kind of what the topic of my earlier discussion this week was. So from your uh, psychology background, talk to us a little bit about dealing with loss personally and then dealing with loss professionally. What are some good techniques to get through that? Sure. I think everybody by now has probably heard of Kubler-Ross, um, the five stages of grief and loss, um, you know, anger, depression, bargaining, denial, and acceptance. And they go in no order. Um, they go in no order. Um, you could be in depression and anger for a while. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, you're in denial. And you're just like, everything's fine. You know, I'm, I'm good for a while. And then something happens and you melt and you're depressed again. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a weird cycle. There's no beginning or end. Um, the stages come and go in no order. And um, if you're really lucky, uh, when my mom was dying, I remember having all five at once and thinking I was gonna come out of my skin. Um, so, 
So if I'm going to do something, I do it a hundred percent, you know? So um, I, I'm thinking, okay, I just had this moment where I think I'm coming out of my skin, but it was, I had for just a fleeting moment, all five stages hit me at once. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the, there was a YouTube video I saw recently about a young woman who talks about moving forward, not moving on. I think there's definitely some things we have to watch that we don't say to people, right? Like, um, you know, oh, we're just hoping that you have moved on more further than that. And we're able to go through, your, you know, your mom's clothes and get rid of, and like, you know, um, there's just some things we don't say. Um, we can talk about moving forward because we move forward with that person in our heart forever. Um, and I think that's a good human thing that we do. Um, it makes us conscientious. It, it's, it's also wisdom. It's resilience. It's lots of great things that we can do that. We're, we're acknowledging that this person was a large part of our life and they will continue to live in my heart, mind and soul forever. Um, so an example of, um, I hate the word acceptance, by the way, that stage, I don't even like to say it to people who are fresh into grief. They're like, I'm acceptance. I'll never accept this. No, it's, it's not really about that. It's about moving forward. Now, an example of that when my mom, who was my best friend and my biggest fan was passing away of liver cancer. Um, I was angry. I was angry. Um, and then I was depressed. Uh, and when this was all fresh and raw in the first few years, I would have a memory or a thought of her. And sometimes I would just uh, cry. I can remember opening a cookbook and a card falling out that she had written to me. And it just melted me on the spot. And I was in uh, tears on the floor. Um, but she had just passed. Um, it had only been less than a year. And um, so I put that card back in the cookbook. And when I went to get it out again, I said, I know it's there. And then I saw it. It was a year and a half later. And I was able to kind of smile as a tear fell down my face. But I didn't fall to the floor crying. Right. So I'm moving. I'm 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 getting I'm moving through this process. And and eventually I open up the cookbook and I look forward to seeing the card and I smile. And I remember her. She still lives in my heart, soul, and mind. And I can feel the blood pumping through my body differently, the oxytocin just being beaming through me. And she is alive in me in those moments. And I still carry her forward through life like that. It's it's that's acceptance. If you can think of acceptance like that, I think it's a lot easier to hear that word. Uh, I didn't make that word up for Kubler and Ross. I would have said. Um, something different maybe, but embrace or something. Embrace. Yeah. I like embrace better. Well, that's still kind of hard when it's fresh, when it's fresh. I had my mom's clothes um, in my front room for two years before I could start going through them. And I would pick up one article, one thing, and I had a memory for everything I picked up to go through. And I had to process that memory. And what I finally decided to do was just something simple like, we'll put the obvious things we're throwing out over here. We'll put um, the really nice things I wanted to give to the nursing home down the street that she, that she liked. And then I wanted to 
make quilts with some of the other stuff that we were familiar with seeing her in or had fun memories of seeing her in. So I made um, memory quilts with, I didn't, I paid somebody to, cause I don't do that. <laughs> you don't want me to do that. That is not a skill or a talent. Um, so that was cool. But grief and loss is complicated and it's different for everybody. What took me two years to do, someone else may be able to do in a few weeks. And that doesn't mean that they're grieving any less or any more than I am. They're just moving through the phases differently. I've heard people in my office, they'll say, well, so-and-so didn't even cry at the funeral home. And I said, was so-and-so in charge of the funeral and orchestrating it? Yeah, it was their spouse. And I go, well, I remember when we went through this and um, they keep you so busy in the planning that you don't have time to think, right? It's like you're strategically having to think. So you're not having time to feel. And I've known people to just completely break down once the funeral is over and the casseroles have stopped coming and there's no more outreach as much as, as much outreach. So, um, you know, everybody goes through this in their own way. Um, and so to just be careful of how we label or judge somebody, they didn't show any emotion at all is what I hear. And I go, well, they may be in denial. They may very well be in denial. And if they're the main planner of all this and coordinating it and having to be the business person that orchestrates it all, they're not going to have time to break down until that's over. Right. So, yeah, that would be my biggest. And there's no time. I mean, um, obviously, if the grief is keeping you from functioning on a day to day, you're you're struggling now at work, you're struggling in your personal life. Um, that, 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 that may be something else we need to look into. But if you're still able to function in society and do the things you would normally do, um, maybe uh, taking a break from a few things for rest and relaxation and mindfulness, that's fine. Um, but yeah, if you start noticing that you're declining in that way, then that's when it's time to reach out to a therapist. Yeah, get some help getting through it. So we traditionally think of dealing with grief as dealing with, you know, major losses, like loss of, you know, a family member, a friend. It could also be, you know, something on the professional side, like a major job loss. But something I've looked at more recently, and you probably have a lot bigger perspective than I do, is grieving the everyday inconveniences, the everyday, the things that take you back. People don't realize you still have emotions tied to that. When something that may not seem like a big deal to somebody else is a big deal to you, you're still going to grieve it. Now, of course, it's a micro grieving. It's not going to be the major loss of, you know, a, a permanent life figure or something that was to your identity. But you still have to take time to not ignore those because if you ignore those, they're going to pile on and they're going to cause more problems. I mean, what is your perspective on that? Well, that is very insightful. Uh, that is very insightful, Casey. Um, you're absolutely 100% right. We as a society... We're great. We show up with the casserole dishes. We're at the funeral home. We're hugging you. We're, we're giving you Kleenex. We are all in during that initial grief phase, right? But then the funeral's over and you have to go home and the home is empty and you're by yourself. Um, and that's, that's tough because at, at big things, if you think about it, any big things in our society, 9-11, right? Any, uh, the, the Hurricane Katrina society, I was so proud of our, I'm so proud of our country to watch people come together like they did to support those in need. For the big things were there, right? But then as the day-to-day -day winds in, everybody kind of, 
walks away and disappears and you don't have as much support coming in, then you're kind of more on your own. And that is a big challenge. And as far as and people don't, um, as a society, I think we have a hard time seeing a lot of things and, and I, and there's no shame or blame in this. It's just something I've observed, but um, people do hurt um, and go through a great deal of grief and loss when they are, um, for example, I've worked with college students who didn't pass the grades to be able to go to medical school or didn't, you know, that was their dream. And now that's, that's not going to happen. And where do we go from there? Right. Um, and, the, and a lot of people are like, well, they're so smart. They can do whatever, you know, and but that's not the point. The point was this person had a dream of being able to do something in the medical field that now they're not going to be able to do because they didn't pass this, this test. Um, and so now we've got to work through that. And that can be just as much of, a, of something to grieve as the loss of something significant in our life. But as a society, we don't see that as well. And our support is real quick to be offered to something else instead of the neighbor next door who's struggling in this way. Um, and it is a real thing. Um, we're, we're all in for the major things that happen, but there's not many people to be found in those everyday day to day. That's why I say have a, a great inner circle of support. I know I've got my three that I can call at any time and we can, you know, and I'm also a member of a little group, a therapist that meets monthly um, and, and it's called the beautifully broken pod and we meet monthly and uh, we share things that we're going through. You know, sometimes it's not always easy to hear the stories that we hear on a day to day and we need some place to process too. So you've got to have this inner circle of support around, you know, that those people, you know, you can call, that you can talk to for hours, that love listening to you, that will give you good constructive feedback, or just let you, you know, talk and listen to you and affirm you, really. Um, and just let you be where you are as a whole. There, there is like a holding spot. They're a bookmark for you. And you can always go back to that. Um, that's why that that support is really important to have. Um, and I just love what you said earlier about how men are allowing themselves to have that with each other more and more. I love that. Gosh, the, you know, the research, it was old that I read in, I think, 2004, 2005, which would have indicated that women who have this inner healthy circle of support are actually healthier single than they are married. Um, men who are married are healthier than men who are single. And the reason for that is because we haven't allowed men to, uh, as a society to make it okay for them to have that same inner circle that women have. Um, and so what was happening is you would get married and then your man would depend on you to be his inner circle of support. <laughs> and that's a lot to put on one person, right? Yeah. We're, we're all responsible and now we're allowing men to be to be in this uh, party too with us to have that kind of inner circle of support around them that um, and we're allowing them to have feelings, allowing them to process those with their other male friends. And I love that. That's so important because then we get closer to really being matched well with someone you know we, we also want someone here everybody the bottom line is everybody's responsible for their support network. I'm not responsible. I, I don't want to be someone's entire support network. 
that's too much of a burden on one person. Everybody has to be responsible for maintaining, for establishing and maintaining their own support network. And even if I'm in a relationship, I don't want to have to go to my man about everything. Oh my gosh, you know. Um, but you know, there's just some things the girls are going to be better to give me some some briefing on, you know, or my pod group of professionals uh, where I can go and talk about my profession um, are going to be good for for certain things. And then I've got a girlfriend I know who's great for shopping. So when I really, you know, need to just go shop, shop therapy, then she's there. Uh, but we should all have a support network, an inner circle of support that we're, we're nourishing, that we're maintaining, um, that we're very active members of. Um, it just makes us better parents, better mates, better and, and healthier as individuals. So I think that's where you draw upon your strength and your hobbies and your interests. You know, if you like running, if you like um, and take I'm learning different things, kickboxing. Um, I decided to go back and take ballet. I, I was a little ballet dancer as a teenager. And I'm like, why not? You know, why not go back and do it again? Who says? Um, so um really engaging, doing things that you love and, and love to do and engage in. Um, sometimes there's nothing better than a good run when you're feeling stressed out or, you know, like, oh, I got so much anxiety and burning those corticosteroids and hormones off that are stressing your immune system and your, your body system and your, your organs. Um, Cause that stuff was not meant to be, you weren't meant to be in fight, flight, freeze, defend 24 seven. You were, just only meant to every once in a while see a dinosaur you had to run from. But <laughs> so we got to have hobbies and interests and people we can reach out to. And, um, and all of that is important to maintain and nourish. And every single person is responsible for their own supports. But I still run into men my age out there dating that think that I should be their entire support. And I just refuse. I'm still single. But we used to raise them like that. And, and, you know, we used to say, well, you know, you need to do that. You need to do all these things and then you need to work. Now we need to work and do all these things. I'm like, no, I, I, I really think that it's the responsibility of each individual to, to have their own support system. Um, yeah, that's really important. Um, and, and then for those, what you would say, I, I don't like to say smaller, greater. Grief is grief. And like we've just identified you could lose someone or you could be just finding out that you, you're not going to be able to go to medical school. Um, and believe it or not, I, at one point when I was young, tender, young, 17, I thought I'd be a PT when I grew up. And then I took my first anatomy and physiology class in the big girl school. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way this is going to happen. And I was crushed, you know? Um, but you know, it's, it, it, it's those things that we feel like we walk alone with sometimes. Um, and the, the great thing is um, getting with those people who get you no matter what, um, that you can talk to about it. Um, even, even if you, there's just one, you've got a golden nugget. Um, so, and, and if you don't have a support system, I encourage you to go on these meetups, go hiking, things you like you know, do the things you like but, and look for people that have like mind or who challenge your thinking a little bit, you know, but a little different enough, but not so different that they challenge your thinking enough to kind of get you thinking in a more positive, constructive way or are just there for you. 
um, when you're grieving, you just need somebody to just kind of sit with you in it and be willing to just sit where you're at in it. And sometimes just not say anything. Just be with me. Just see me and be present with me. And that's, that's enough a lot of the time. Yeah. It's the active listening of you don't have to fix me. You just have to hear me. That's, yeah. that's a thing that a lot of people fail to master and they don't understand that, you know, when someone comes to you with a problem, there's two things you probably shouldn't do unless they specifically ask for them. One is try to solve their problem. If they're not asking you to solve their problem, they don't want you to solve the problem. Right. And two, you can only relate and empathize with people if you're not going to rub in how your situation is better. I've dealt with people that do that too. Like, oh, that's sorry you're going through that. I'm not dealing with that. My life is great. And you're like, well, now you've damaged this connection I'm trying to make with you. It's just, it's very yeah. awkward. Yeah. Yeah. That's things not to say, you know, I always <laughs> tell people, think, think about if you could put yourself in that other person's shoes, it's the golden rule mama used to talk about. Right. So imagine for a minute that you're in their shoes and that you're having these feelings really imagine that. And what would you like to hear if it were you, what would you like to hear? Um, you know, I, I once recently spoke to this woman who lost her husband and um, he had been in hospice for a year, That, which is very unusual. Uh, that's a, a, an outlier uh, condition. But she said when he passed that people would come to her and, and or that people just didn't come to the funeral. And she saw one lady out at the grocery store and she kept dodging her. Every time she saw her, she'd dodge and hide. And she goes, I know it was because she didn't come and she feels bad about it. And eventually the lady just left her cart and left the store. And I was like, wow, you know, wow. And, and so it's interesting. People's character really comes out during these such times, right? And they, it reveals them. And so that's information for you. And it's helpful to know, oh, well, this person can't quite go there with me. But, you know, they can't make the climb, as Michelle Obama would say. There were some friends when they got into office that just couldn't make the climb, you know, and, and um, you couldn't just have anybody at the White House. You had to be able to behave a certain way. And there were just some people that couldn't make the climb. And there's just some people that can't make the climb. And it's good to know that up front, it, as painful as that is, so we can start thinking about, you know, where we might put our energies elsewhere that are going to be more fruitful to us too. And people are well-intended. They just, I think that they love us so much and they see us hurting and they want to make it go away as fast as they can. They think if they could say something that it'll help make it go away. And it's one of the worst things they could actually be doing. There's those people too. They, they do mean well, but somehow it just comes out all wrong. <laughs> That always makes me think of one of my favorite quotes from a different Kevin Costner baseball movie from Bull Durham, where it actually talks about the world is made for those not cursed with self-awareness. And yeah, if you can't see yourself and understand who you are and be able to, you know, have the empathy to view that in others, that's where it comes out. You just can't make that genuine connection. You think that you have to make them feel better. Most people don't want you to make them feel better. They just want to talk. They just want to get it off their chest. Right. Because in sharing the narrative, you process the event. And each time you share the narrative, you process a little bit more. And if you think about it, each time you tell this story, even though you think it's the same story, but each time you tell it, there's usually some other little piece or some different way that you tell it. 
And that's the brain pulling information from all these different centers. And it's kind of like, if I could say it, it's just taking out the trash, right? And we talk about having dreams as kind of detoxing the mind at night while we're sleeping. But I think that as we share our narratives, we're clearing that information up out of the brain, getting it out into a conscious level, where then when, as we become aware, we can start to work through that. But as it remains at a subconscious level, because we stuff it, we stuff it and we stuff it. It's like the rug that gets the dirt under it and you trip over it. It's unfortunately because, uh, you know, the rug one day you'll trip over and one day you keep stuffing that stuff. It's going to come out at work. It's going to come out in a place you don't want it to. You're going to lose your temper or you're going to um, have uncontrollable crying in the middle of a PTO meeting or something like that. If we're not right, if we're not um, kind of working on this a little bit at a time and how we do that we i encourage people talk to as many people as listen to you go to grief support groups but like for some of these everyday things there's no support group there's divorce care there's men's group there's widows groups there's but there's nothing for um hey did you just get a dis you know did you are you going through grief and loss at work in your work situation or your career situation. Those would be great support groups to start seeing in our society. And I think just bringing it out and talking about it, sharing our narratives about it, maybe that's gonna bring it to a conscious level for some, if not, you know, myself and some of my my members in my pod um, to think about, you know, how many people would, would come to a uh, grief, grief and loss group, career grief and loss? I think a lot. I, there's a lot of people switching careers or you get to a certain point, you're like, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't know what I want to do. And then there's the whole notion of starting over and limiting your income to start over. So there's a lot that goes with grief and loss and making a career shift. Um so that would be an important one, I think, to consider having. Um, in the career side right now, especially with a lot of industries seeing a downturn based on the economy. And I mean, the way the way layoffs go is archaic. It, it's, a, it's a terrible process. Call you in on a Friday afternoon. You know, you no longer have a job. Have a nice weekend. If you're lucky, you get a severance package or something. But it's we're, that's one area where I don't feel like society has grown. It's not caught up. You know, you expect somebody to give you two weeks notice before they vacate their position, but you don't give them two weeks notice that you're going to get rid of them or, you know, some kind of thing like that. And I feel like that's just an area where society could definitely grow. And I understand, you know, there's proprietary information. There's all kinds of things you don't want to make. You don't want to give somebody an opportunity to sabotage your company. And I'm not saying that I don't get that. But if you want to invoke loyalty, you want to get people to be a part of your culture and actually believe that you have a culture, then you have to treat them with the same level of respect. And it can't be a, you know, a quick Friday afternoon, 10 minutes. You know, if you're being like, oh, here's the HR rep you've met one time, they're going to talk to you about what to do. It's just, it's not okay. It's not human. Yeah. It's, I want to be treated like a human. Um, yeah. Um, and, and you're seeing like, Early in my career, during the kind of Stoker wagon days, um, you only got laid off if there was something wrong with you, all right? And, and that was kind of the message anyway, whether it was true or not, that we got growing up. And and um, I remember, okay, now I'm going to share my age. I was at Indiana Bell when it became Ameritech, and that was a big deal. Um 
And there were a lot of people there who had been there for 30 years who were, who had it, they came in, they did their job, they went home. It was a nice environment. Um, and then things started changing. And, um, and uh, those folks as Ameritech came in and, and wanted to implement some changes, they decided to retire. And what happened was we had so many people retire that Ameritech was hiring people back on contract because they weren't planning on losing all of them at once, of course. So um, they brought them back. But I can remember people being um, given a box, you know, and some a guard watching over them as they packed the box. And you didn't know it was going to happen. So you're just going into work one day and you think everything's great and gravy. You're getting your coffee and somebody's like, need to clear out your desk. Um, so that, that started happening more and more. We weren't very dignified and I get it too. I mean, we can't take chances with proprietary information. Of course, um, we don't want people stealing from the company and, and all that, but it still could have been done in a more dignified human kind of a way. Right. Uh, we have evolved a little more since then. However, I don't know. I'm hearing more things like this. I went to give my boss three weeks notice because I'm working on this project and they told me to just go ahead and leave now. And I was really counting on having that two weeks of a paycheck before I started the other position. Um, I'm hearing things like that. I'm also hearing things like some companies trend around letting people go around the holidays and a Christmas carol comes to mind. You know, it's like, where, what are we letting people up? They've just spent money on their kids or maybe wanted to buy their wife a, a nice special present and we're laying them off at that time. Um, you know, there's, I think a more dignified way to do that. I've known people who've been working, who have organizational psych PhDs who had trouble finding internships in big corporations because they didn't want them there. They didn't want them there um, because they don't want somebody telling them how they have to treat people in a more dignified, humane manner, because that might mean more change, maybe more of an investment, maybe more time, maybe more training um, that they don't want to do. They want to know about. When I was a, when I got my MBA and graduated in '93, my big thesis was on adult learning, and most uh, you're going to have a, a better adult learning experience if you're seeing, hearing, and doing a combination of all three in your training, but. Anymore, what I'm hearing and seeing um, is people, um, you kind of go in the work environment. It's like Hunger Games, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, we kind of like you, so we're going to send you these little gifts of, of knowledge every once in a while on how you can survive. And then, and for those of you we don't really care about, you're not going to get those little gifts of knowledge that will help you to survive. So we're just, you, you're just probably not going to make it. Um, I don't know what the, what, when we started thinking that that was okay, it creates problems. It stresses people out. It, it, for people who are anxious, it makes them more anxious. And then they can't find work and they can't fit in because they are not going to be trained. They're not going to be treated like human beings. And so then we wonder why we have people on Medicaid. And half of Indiana's children are on Medicaid. 
And a lot of what we see on Medicaid are single moms who've been abandoned um, in terms of having that other parent provide the support that is needed to take care of the children. So there's a lot of issues in our society right now that are concerning. Um, but if we want to see more people working and not on Medicaid, then we need to treat them like human beings. Um, well, I really have to do. I mean, I've I, I degreed and I have a profession. If I didn't have those skills and abilities and I was unable for whatever reason to have those degrees, those skills and abilities, but I was still a good person that wanted to work and earn a wage and do good. Um, it's You're going to be hard pressed, yeah. you know, to find something whereby you will be treated like a human and in a dignified manner. Um, and it just contributes to this surplus population we have on needing assistance because we've created or made worse their symptoms instead of made society better by doing the more humane thing. I don't understand that. I mean, the thing is, we're going to pay one way or another. Okay, yeah. So we might as well just contribute to a uh, a better society and, and people that feel more confident, like they're able to contribute and do good um, than, you know, not treating them like humans and, and seeing that. So we can pay them and we, we can treat them like humans and we might pay a little bit more to train them and we might, you know, um, do that, but we're, we're going to pay for that or we're going to pay for them to be on Medicaid. Which would you like to do? What, yes. what side of that would you like to be on? What side of that history do you want to be on? And that's why I only deal with people who are interested in benchmarking. I don't want to deal with people who are looking at a quick fix because um, it usually lacks humanity. It um, lacks humanity and foresight. You know, you're not seeing the strategic implications. And, you know, the something that's driven me crazy, my, I can't say my entire life, you know, as a kid, you don't think about this kind of thing. So in a professional setting, it's always been the, it's not personal, it's business. Well, that's a that's a crock of you know whatever words you want to insert there. Okay. Yeah, it, it you know you it is personal. You just change that person's life. You change the trajectory of where they were immediately going. Now they can bounce back. They can rebound. They can put themselves back together and you know figure it out. But you especially on the holidays, like you just mentioned, that is personal, and that is a very difficult time to try to get government aid, try to get anything to help you during that time because everybody shuts down. So it's it's an you know, insult to injury. So it's better. And I don't know if you've seen. I have a lot of baseball movie references. I apologize, but the movie Moneyball. There's a great scene in Moneyball where the GM finally, you know, he understands that it is personal. These guys aren't just you know numbers on a sheet. You have to go down and talk to them. When he has to cut somebody. You know, he goes down and he talks to them, and he says, "I know this hurts. I'm sorry, but it it is reality." That means that would mean so much more than just. Well, it's not personal because it is to that person. It is very personal. So they need to acknowledge that, I feel like. Right. Right. Yeah. There's been this movement. And I, you know, I wrote that in 93. So what is it? 2024 now. And we digressed in that area instead of progressed in that area yes. in terms of how we're dealing with. I think we deal better with layoffs. I think we're more human in that regard. But I mean, a little bit. But like you said, when you're doing it every year at the, at the Christmas, it just Scrooge comes immediately to my mind. I'm like, what are you <laughs> doing to people? You know, I mean, for people who are suicidal or who are anxious or depressed, and you may not know who they are at work. Um, you know, until something's happened. Um, so, 
Yeah, and then can we just please treat people in a dignified way and go back to training them like we used to? I mean, when did this become a thing where it's okay to just throw people in if they make it fine, if they don't find that is real. If you don't have mental health issues before you go into some of these places, you will come in out or health conditions, ulcers, uh, yeah, immunity issues, weight gain. Um, I've seen all kinds of things in my office as a result of that sort of mentality. And like I said, we can either just do the right thing and pay for the training and treat people like humans and make them feel like they, they have a value added contribution they can make to society by training them and building their confidence to do so. Um, or we can treat them like that. And we're going to have a lot of people out more sick, more unhealthy and needing more assistance. I guess big businesses are saying, well, let the government do it. And governments, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. It, it's just, it's a cop out. It, it's a cop out for doing what you know is the right thing. I'd rather be on the right side of history and working with people who are interested in being on the right side of history because our kids are going to, you know, I've seen it. You know, the younger generation, I love you guys because I remember being a kid thinking my generation's doing some really screwed up things that I know their kids are going <laughs> to see you different. And you guys are, you are. And our and our kids are, you know, um, I have a 22 year old and I was, I, I became a mother later in life. And I know they're already seeing things that other generations haven't, they're going to do different that they're upset about. Um, you know, and one thing is child support. Now, you don't even get me started, but most of the time it's the woman that's not getting the child support. Okay. And the last statistics I saw was a Maria Shriver report um, on this in 2010, where only 25% of men were paying child support. And of the 25%, only half of those were paying what was due. But in, I know in, um, Indiana anyway, and I'm just going to say it, um, you have to be at a class level felony uh, in terms of what you owe in support, which is usually thousands of dollars before you as a female or male, but mostly female, can get a prosecutor to go after him to get that money for you. And if you don't wait, and if you can't wait to get all that money, you just go without support because you can't afford to put $5,000 retainer fee down on a private attorney. And I've seen this happen before too. Well, my husband owes me $5,000. So I put $5,000 down retainer fee on an attorney and he spent that in weeks. And now I owe him another five to get five, but it, it doesn't, it, the math doesn't work. Um, so what ends up happening is the women, number one, they don't have the money for retainer down for a private attorney for a few thousand dollars that he owes. They have to wait till it's 10 or 15,000 or so before they can get a public, you know, a private or a, a public defender sort uh, of attorney through the system to go after them. And then it, it becomes a whole different ball game. But, but we have this, this epidemic, this, this real serious situation whereby we've made it, it's like, it's okay to have babies and just walk away and disappear and not have to have, and, and we're not holding these guys to any level of accountability. And, and women too are joining this crew. I know more and more, 
but it's still mostly males that are doing this. Um, and I just think, and this is me personally, just speaking anecdotally, but I don't care that about two weeks of you not paying your support, somebody's going to pick you up and we're going to take you down to this workhouse facility and we're going to have you work on our roads, fill in the potholes. Yep. You'll be in a purple jumpsuit and everybody will be able to identify you as what you are. And you'll be filling in potholes or you'll be doing things for society to pay back what we're having to pay your um, baby mama in Medicaid services and food stamps and other things. That's what I would like to see. No, that's I would like to see some more accountability there um, because this, if you look at the data, a lot of the poor are single moms. And half the children in this state, when you've got almost half, if if not more, on Medicaid, what does that say? I mean, it says a lot about our economy. It says a lot about, um, it, and if you really do a deep dive, it is a lot of, of single females that are living in poverty that are needing those services because of deadbeat dads or deadbeat moms. Um, put them in a, a fun colored jumpsuit, make them work on the highways, make them at least pay back what we're having to pay because they didn't want to be responsible parents. And it is negligent when you don't pay that support because it's not about that man or that woman getting the money. It costs money to raise children. I and then when I was raising mine 20 years ago, they said it was going to cost $200,000 to raise a child. And that by the time you're done, and that doesn't even include college. So it's not really um, if she got a nicer place to live and you're, you're, you can't look at that like, oh, shit, I need it's for the kids, man. It's it's for the kids. Um and so, you know, I mean, I just think that there's a lot of places for us to evolve as a society. Why aren't we holding people more accountable that aren't paying their child support? Why does it have to reach thousands of dollars before you have, you will go after them? Why are we making people living without that support who don't probably have the means or the ability um, to pay a private attorney to go after them? That should just be something that we do about two weeks paycheck or you know two paychecks and or three pay whatever you want to decide it is but i don't think we need to wait till it's thousands of dollars before yeah but by then this person's living in poverty um and could have really used that support years ago um so that's just you know it, it's interesting the places that we just sort of let fall to the side in our society and think nothing about or like it's not really a problem um I uh, was once told by someone who was a, a governor in a particular county in Indiana that domestic violence wasn't a problem there. And they didn't need to talk with me about any kind of assistance being needed. And uh, it was just a, a year or two later that there was a double homicide in that county. Um, and, and so and domestic violence presents itself differently um, in different socioeconomic groups sometimes. So um you know, I, I just there there's a lot we've we've come a long way. We really have. But in, in this area, we have not. And, you know, to top it all off, we don't even have equal pay for women still. And yet we expect them somehow, you know, if if we expect them somehow 
to miraculously have a great job, a great career, take care of the baby by themselves and look great and do great. And all it's, it's, it's outrageous, really. We still have um, areas, industries where women aren't welcome, as welcome as men. Um, and although that is changing, it's, it's not changing fast enough. I see those women in my office every so often. And, um, you know, it's clear that there are still those those um, cultures out there that are limiting and minimizing. Um, if you look around you, most of the service people are women and those high stress customer service jobs. Mm -hmm. um, the healthcare industry is still primarily women unless you're and we're seeing more men as nurses too, which is fabulous. Um, but but we're they're working really long and hard, awful hours. And you could be in another industry that's mostly male dominated, and I and not have that headache. Um, I've seen that. Um, so we we have a long way to go. Still, I would like to have seen it by now. At the age of fifty eight, gotten even further but it hasn't um, because we have people benefiting from not paying their child support. And they're, they're across all socioeconomic uh, levels because, you know, I've known people that can pay it. They just don't want it because their, their attitude is, um, well, she doesn't need that or he doesn't need that. It's, it's asshole. It's not about you. It's about the kids. It's about the kids. You yeah, know, that one's funny because, you know, we had a thought about that. We've actually had a debate before with a few different people. You know, I had soldiers who basically, if you're in the military, they're going to dock your pay. Like if you have to pay child support, it gets immediately docked and it works that way. And he was complaining, well, I don't know where the money's going. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I can't tell you that. But since you're paying it, I'm not saying she has to do it a full on balance sheet, you know, inventory business style. But can we see, because you see your kid every week. Do you see where it's going to? If you don't see, if your kid's still in bad clothes, they're not getting the health and nutrition they need, but she's got new nails, then you have an argument just like she'd have an argument if you don't pay. That's so, right. I mean, that, That's it, right. It has to be some kind of fair and equitable way. You're not wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong in any way, but it's just like the, the people who are supposed to be moderating this, you know, they're not, and they're just kind of pushing it aside and they're hurting both sides. And the bigger issue is, you know, the divorce rate in general like if we were all being grown-ups then we would be very much more careful about who we select as a mate but people are just so quick they're all oh, in love let's get married you know um or let's uh, you know it's it, the problem is it's easy to get married and i mean you know we all have the right to happiness and all that we can't it's you know impose ourselves on the constitution um but Gosh, man, if we could think more about that decision before. And I just what I love about this younger generation is they're kind of like living together for a while. I love that. Um, when I was growing up, it was like, you got to get married. You know, what's this living together thing? And and now it's more so accepted and everybody's kind of doing what they need to do for them and what feels right for them. And um, I think that's a positive. I think that's a real serious positive. We're seeing more women. I think 2023 was one of the first years. I mean, it was a historical year in that we saw more women um, upward around 30, 32 or so um, still being single um, and in bigger, big numbers. Um, so it, what it says is we're, we're taking our time more to kind of figure out what we want. And we're not 
um, letting all these other distractions get in the way of that because it is a big decision. It's easy to get married. It's not easy to get out. And some people can never get out if they didn't get a prenup. They are stuck. They're, they can't get out. That, that does happen. It, it is real. Um, and, you know, so it does well to really think about who you're marrying. And I, this is personal, um, but I believe with a 50% or greater first time divorce rate in this country, <laughs> that we really need to look at it like a business partnership, as well as a love interest. And if you're going to, if you're going to put yourself all in, that it's not just that we're, well, marriage is legally a binding agreements anyway. Um, so, you know, I think that you're looking then as at this as a business partnership, if you decide to get married and with any business partnership, we know those have about a 50% fail rate too. But if you're going into a business relationship, 50, 50, you have an agreement that you've both signed, you know, you're both, you're both partners in this business and there's a contract. There's an agreement that you've both signed. And I think that maybe that would, I would just encourage people to consider that more before they get married, because there are marriages you just will find yourself unable to get out of if you don't. And that's a tragedy. Um, that's a, that's a real serious tragedy. So we have to be thinking more. I think, um, there was an LMFT I spoke with who said, ideally people should date for five years before they get married. Um, and I said, well, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so, um, but, you know, ideally, you know, taking your time to get to know somebody also before you become super intimate with them. Right. I mean, geez, when we go on a first, second or third date, you're really still just an acquaintance. Oh, yeah. This discussion <laughs> with all the time. I mean, you're really just an acquaintance. I, I probably know more about my neighbor. It just goes out to get the mail, you know, occasionally. And I strike up a conversation with them once in a while than I do by a third date. And yet so many men, you know, when you're dating, expect something within so many dates. And it's like, God, don't you want to know? I guess you don't even care about who I am, you know? And if that's the case, then you need to get on some other website, you know, where they have seeking arrangements, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. do that and you're going to pay for it, you know, in one way or another, you're going to pay for it, but that's not what I am. And so, you know, that it, it's, it's interesting. So we just kind of, we're real quick to get in a relationship. We're real quick to get married and there needs to be more thought given to that because like I said, it, it ends up damaging um, the children involved. If you have children, it ends up hurting them. It ends up hurting people, people around you who've grown close to this idea of you being a couple. It, it's, and it is a, it is once you're married, it's a business partnership. I like to think of it as a business partnership. So with any business partnership, you should have a contract or an agreement. So it makes it easier to um, walk away from without destroying each other and the children and people around you. Um, but you can do it in a more civil manner. Um, and I, I encourage people, I, I do this whole thing with women where I talk about, okay, the first few dates, they're just acquaintances. They're strangers when you meet them for a first time. So, you know, on a first date, don't even let them come to your house, meet them somewhere, at least the first few dates till you get to know who they are. Um, and then as they become, you become more acquainted with them, maybe you just see that you have some similar interests that you can engage in, you know, 
you both like reading. You both like reading certain kinds of books. Maybe you have a book club and that's as far as it goes. That you've got a friend. That's what we call pure friend, hobby interests, kind of like I like going shopping with Valerie, but we don't do much else together. We just, just shopping's our thing. Um, and then maybe we get to know them further and they become friends. And we're, we're inviting them into our lives a little bit more and trusting a little bit more of ourselves with them. Then they become our best friends. Obviously, that takes it to a next level. And then we decide maybe that's an intimate partner. Maybe we'll see, you know, if this, this could really be a go for us. And then we decide to get married. And all this should take, you know, at least three years, in my opinion. Um, that whole that process. Well, you know, if you think about it, Steve Harvey's got a great line. He's got lots of daughters. He says, um, GM has a 90 day probation or they used to. So, <laughs> you know, you go through the interview process. It's one, two, three interviews. It's pretty grueling. Right. And then you get hired. Let's say you're one of the lucky ones. You get hired um, for 90 days. You're kind of on this probationary status. I mean, they could get rid of you like that if you don't, you know, um, meet the needs of the business and show up and are punctual and do your duties. So um, how much longer do you think you should take to get to know somebody before you marry them? Yeah. You know, it's just, infection. You know, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's kind of crazy. Um, and I learned that the hard way. You went out. <laughs> I can't see you. I don't know what happened there. Sorry about that. But yeah, that was weird. I got, I'm tuning out on this one. No, but so, you know, I just, I just try and encourage ladies to give themselves time to get to know somebody and give them time to get to know you um, before you become super intimate. Because once you're intimate with men, um, it, there's, well, it, it, it is more mechanical. With women, it is more spiritual. And, and we're lying to ourselves and you to try and think that we could be different because it's not usually different. I see them in my office all the time and the way that the brain is connected, um, the way that we're, we're made is different in that regard too. Um, so the corpus callosum dividing the right and left hemispheres, the brain actually uh, we see this testosterone wash occur during the baby developing and they, the baby's going to be a boy and testosterone for, you know, it starts flooding the system. It, it actually it kind of erodes a little bit at the corpus callosum, whereas with, with women or female babies, we don't see that, that erosion. So it allows more for somebody to be a little bit more um, mechanical, you know, or one side of the brain here we're not using both sides of the brain as much and so it's mechanical it's linear it's these things but for women it is all of it it's spiritual it's emotional it's psychological it's physical and so once you give that special sacred part of yourself away to someone it hurts if it's nothing more than that than something physical for them it, it hurts us differently. So um, I, I'm very, with my women, I try to really encourage them anyway to try to, to give things more time um, so they can start to see the true character of the individual before they give themselves completely away, which is the most sacred part of a woman that she could give you um, and really should be, um, there should be some discernment in that and who you give that to. It shouldn't just be, you know, <laughs> given to anybody and everybody. We've dated for three to five times, three to five dates, you know. Yet, as a woman who's dated, you know, I've had to, you know, 
stave off gentlemen who think that by the fifth date they should see something pretty significant in that area. And and I'm like, you know, I'm not your girl. Go somewhere else. I would like to get to know you first, you know. If you can't appreciate that, then I'm a, and, and they look at me like I'm a big weirdo because so many of us are just giving it out. You know, we're not discerning. We're not being wise. And then we wonder how we end up in these situations. So, you know, there's well, that. Pop culture trope with it, too. You know, where they talk about, like, oh, you got to kiss him on the first date. You got to do this. And you just watch. I feel like people take TV and movies as too much of reality at times, too. Mm-hmm. You've got a very narrow window in this show or movie to portray this whole relationship. And that's not a realistic expectation for what relationships are. And I love the fact that you talked about the best friend. You know, this is a person you're going to spend more time with than anyone else on the planet. If you don't like just spending time with them, then you're in the wrong place because all that, you know, emotion and passion and, you know, lust and any other words you want to throw at it. I won't say that fully fades, but it ebbs and flows. You know, it's like a wave. It comes in, it goes out. That's not always the predominant emotion in the relationship. And if you don't like spending time with that person, you're going to start running into issues really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be your best friend. And you can get clouded over by looks, you know, and all kinds of things that you think you see. And then the more time you spend, the more time you see their true character. And it's not like they're trying to be deceptive. They're just people. They're putting on their best self for you because that's what we do in general. It's our human condition. We go to job interviews. We put on our best self. We go to date. We're dating going on that first few dates. We're putting out our best self. But, you know, wait till you see a little bit more of what the person is on a day to day, you know, Wait till you see them go through the drive through and get an order wrong, you know, and how they handle that. Um, you know, I mean, wait, wait, just just wait a little while. Um, and um, and I've been just as guilty and especially in my youth, um, you know, as anybody else in maybe not not being as discerning as I would have liked to have been. But through life experience, I've, I'm now much more discerning. And I can tell that we ladies are just giving it out because when I go out on a third date and they act, they look at me like I'm from Mars, you know, when I went, I was like, you know, I just really want to do the whole you know, any touchy feely stuff till I get to know you a little bit more, you know, why don't we go for a walk after, you know, work on Tuesday in the park, or why don't we, you know, meet somewhere, um, um, you know, I don't know, book club, whatever, something you should have at least three different um, categories of things you like to do together, by the way, too. Your energy levels have to match. I mean, there's a whole science on this. Neil Warren Clark talks about, which is really good and it's really true. Um, that there's just some things we have to match at to to have a long-term relationship with. So yeah. Um, anyway, we digressed. I kind of think we got off off where we this, were. We this just, has been perfect. Like I told you, <laughs> you know, this is your journey. We're going any which way you want to go with it, but we are getting closer to the end. So I do have some pointed questions for you, just to. See how you react. I always like to give these to guests and see what they think about. But, you know, we talked a lot about where you've come from. So in the next, you know, five years, where do you want to go? The next five years. Um, well, in the next five years, I am hoping that I'm going to know a little bit more about what direction I'm taking in terms of my career path and um, 
I am hoping that um, I'm going to be more involved in making change in society. Um, and I don't know what that looks like yet, but I hope to be more involved. And I want to be more involved in the ways that I want to be involved. And that's speaking, um, that's educating, that's consulting, and trying to help people bring about real change in their businesses and their personal lives and their family systems. Um, and advocating for evolution of some of these areas we talked about tonight, uh, wherever I can, with whatever, um, you know, change.org, those are great places to go to write something up that you want, try and get a bill passed, watch the IGA, Indiana General Assembly, what they're passing, what they're not, go on their website, see what they're doing, stay involved so that things just don't get passed through the House and Senate without people if, if as many as a hundred or 200 people were to say, no, we don't want that. And there would have to be, uh, there would be more awareness about it. It would make them think more about what they're passing. And because they want to be elected, they're going to be concerned about what you think, what the number of numbers matter. Um, so I want to somehow be involved in encouraging more evolution. I don't know what that looks like yet. I'm still fighting my way through it. But I, I really want to be more involved in being a part of the process of evolving society and people to that next level that we we all really need to be at. When you look at the Norwegian countries, they've got this right. Um, they're paying their teachers like we pay attorneys and doctors here. Um, they're allowing people to stay home with their children for up to a year with pay after they're born. They're contributing to society in ways that, um, and you don't have to be a, a um, socialist country or social democrat democratic country to do those things, um, you know. So it's just about doing the right thing and watching the fruits of that come back to you. It's going to come back to you as a society one way or another. What side of history do you want to be on? So. Um, on my way out, as I close up my career, because I'm, I'm getting older, I still want to be involved in um, evolving things. And so uh, uh, getting out there and talking about it, processing, sharing my narrative is helping me figure out what those next steps may look like for me. I don't know yet all the way, but I know I've got to be speaking. I've got to be doing and I've been known to get on change.org. I've been known to call my congressman, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know yet, but something's coming and I'll figure it out here probably in the next year or two. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. You know, you don't need to have it mapped out. That's one of the things I talk mm -hmm. with when people ask me about this kind of stuff. You don't have to have the next five years. I'll, I pick that benchmark just, you know, it's a fun one. It's one that everybody can kind of think about. But if you know what you're doing tomorrow and then thinking about building that step, you know, I had a talk with my oldest daughter actually last night. She got into a new activity. She's not doing as well as she wants to because she's one of the older kids in the class. But you're still a beginner. But there's nothing wrong with being a beginner. You're taking positive steps each and every time you try this. You're taking an approach that's going to get you to where you want to be. So just keep that in mind and realize that, you know, you're not competing against anyone else here. You're competing against yourself. And it's not really a competition, it's enjoyment. If you're not having fun doing it, you don't have to do this. It's not a not that big a deal. 
Yeah, it's it's hard sometimes, especially when they're kids like that and they're listening, the peer pressure and stuff, right? But that I love that you're giving her that direction and guidance to look inward to see what's right for her. That's awesome. I love that. So question for you here. So out of all the stuff you've done through your professional career, what has been the least enjoyable? I would say um, least enjoyable. I mean, I, I think once you get your, your head wrapped around the fact that every job you ever had has made you who you are today, it's sort of hard to think it, I guess, least enjoyable would be where I'm just, you know, sitting and clicking and not having a lot of interaction with people. Um, um, I, I think that I need to be, if I'm sitting and clicking and not having, I need to be feeling like I'm contributing, which I do currently. But um, I've been in those positions before where you just feel like a cog in the wheel. You're just like going through the motions. It doesn't, you don't see the outcomes of what you're doing. Um, you know, some prisoners of war camps, as you know, the, the thing that drove them crazy was having to move dirt from one side to another, just to, just to move it just to be, and, and it, it, there was no purpose or meaning. And after a while, it just, it drove them crazy. So I think when um, I'm not working with people, it, it drives me crazy. I've tried to do other things. Um, and uh, if I'm not working with people, it's, it's, it's not, it's not fun. I don't, I don't enjoy it. Um, so, you know, I would have to say, I remember as a kid working in a candy store in the mall, in Greenwood Mall, and I hated that job. I hated retail. I hated it. And I was just, I was just like, first of all, we didn't have the registers that you have, so we had to count the money out. And every once in a while, I would screw that up, you know, because I'm talking to somebody, you know, and I, that, that's the most important thing to me, you know. And so, counting the money at age 15, 16 wasn't the most important thing to me. Um, so, if I'm just counting money all day, or you know, God bless people who do that, you know, because we need them. We need them. Um, but for me, no. I think that's probably where I just lose interest. Um, and then I get ADHD like, and it gets worse and I got to go. <laughs> yeah. I would say that's probably it. The one thing that's been common throughout my career is um, I just feel like I've been a truth seeker. Start off as a journalism student because I wanted the truth to be revealed in my reporting. I wanted to un unbury things. I wanted to expose things. I wanted to bring attention to things that needed our attention as a society. Um, and uh, and then it, that grew into wanting to go into counseling, which is just a deeper dive into all that. Um, so, um, and even when I was at the phone company, it was during a time when if we were talking to somebody on the phone who was struggling with food and didn't have food, there was not that there was a quality work life committee that would put together bags of groceries and take them to someone every once in a while. Um, of course, you couldn't do that today, right? Um, but even then, you know, as I do an uh, an autopsy of my career, a, a backflash look at my career, there was always um, a need to be truth seeking and exposing and evolving and growing and 
voicing these things, talking about these things that often are not talked about so that we can all start putting it into our consciousness and start to do something about it. Um, so yeah, any, anything that I think is not, I'm just like counting money. God bless it. I need people that can count money at the bank. Right. Cause I can't, I get to talking to somebody and I'm like, I'm gone. You know, Oh, did I just give you an extra 20? Yeah. Um, so those kinds of jobs probably would not be for me. Um, I would not be, be good at that. And I'm grateful for the folks that do it well. Final question for you here. This will make you think, not that you haven't been already, because this has been, like I said, a, a fantastic <laughs> episode. I really enjoy getting to hear your story and perspectives. But I tried to pick a pivotal age on this one. And, you know, looking back, trying to find an age that connect with most people. So, you know, either you're going from junior high school to high school, middle school to high school, whatever the combination is, wherever you are, 14 is an age I came up with. It's, you're still not quite sure your footing. So if you had to talk to your 14-year-old self, what would you say? Uh, I would say you have so much inside of you that you don't know about yet. So much strength, so much resilience, so much courage, so much confidence. And you have the ability to be very brave. And every time you feel an inkling to be brave, you should act on it. You should just do it. As fearful as that might be, as uncomfortable as that might be, it's gonna break down the barriers and the doors to opportunity for you in so many ways of your life that will bring you joy and peace and contentment. So just do it. That, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's a very good one. I mean, I've heard I've heard a lot of different people's perspectives. That's a really good one. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. That's why I would say to my 14-year-olds, have you ever seen the movie The Adam Project? Where he goes, I think that one. Yeah, it's, a, it's a cute show on that. He goes back to visit his younger self. That's pretty cool. You have to take a look at it. So let me know what you I'll think. I'll add that one to my list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so any closing thoughts you'd like to share? No, this was this was wonderful, Casey. I love what you're doing. I love that you're promoting um, a conscious level awareness, uh, allowing people to share their narratives, putting these ideas out into the world. I've listened to some of your other um, segments that you've had; they're wonderful. I, I I've got some from everything I've listened to, and it's made me think, you know, about what I can do different or how I might see the world differently because of those episodes. And so thank you for what you're doing, because it's really putting some beautiful things out into the world, stimulating thinking, getting people to share their narratives, bringing things to a conscious level that maybe we hadn't thought of before. So thanks for doing. Thanks you for inviting me. It's really been an honor. Thank you. Thank you for all the kind words. For being my guest on here tonight and you know anywhere people can follow you or help promote you um exaltedllc.com uh, we offer coaching consulting education i've speak spoken on many different issues in the mental health field and on mindset so you can find me there right, perfect thank you all right thanks so much Thank you for listening to Constructive Curiosity. 
Visit ConstructiveCuriosity.com to learn more about our mental performance training, career coaching, and business management consulting services. Constructive Curiosity has the insight to get it right. Thank you for listening and keep being the best version of yourself.